Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 1. It is the Advent season, as we've been singing about, so we're actually taking a four-week pause here from our series on the book of Acts. Don't worry, we'll get back to it in January. Uh, But we are spending some time in Luke 1 and 2 over the course of the next four weeks, looking at four songs in Luke 1 and 2 that talk about the coming of Jesus Christ. Before we do anything, I do want to pray here and just ask that God would help us as we open the Word together. Uh, Father, we come before you this morning with great anticipation. We have an expectation that every time we open your Word, something amazing can happen. Because we know that your Word does not return to you empty, but accomplishes all that you desire and achieves the purpose for which you sent it. And so as we open your Word this morning to Luke 1, we have an anticipation that you will speak And that you will accomplish all that you desire and you will achieve your purposes. And that gives us great hope this morning that what we're about to do is not a waste of our time. But rather, it is a tremendous privilege that we as your church, your people, the sheep of your hand, the people of your pastor, that we get to open your word together. And we have an expectation that you will work. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't know what kind of Christmas shopper you are. Maybe you're the type of person who begins the quest for the perfect Christmas gift on December 26th of the previous year, if not before. If so, I have no doubt that your Christmas list was finished months ago and you are basking right now in the glow of your stress-free shopping season. If that's you, congratulations. We're all impressed by your organizational skills. But I would guess the vast majority of us are not in that category. Most of, us have at least a st- a st- most of us have at least a still, still few people. Talking is hard this morning. Most of us have at least a few people on the list who we haven't got to yet. Or in some cases, we haven't even started the list. And if you fall into either of those last two categories, I thought I might try to help you out this morning by offering up a few Christmas gift suggestions for you. Now, mind you, these gifts are a little bit more on the expensive side. In fact, some might say they're extravagant, but it's important, I think, that you are able to find that special gift that sets you apart as a great gift giver. After all, anybody can buy new socks or sweater or underwear for someone, but if you really want to stand out, you probably need to go a step beyond. For example, I know that candles are a popular Christmas gift. In fact, in his younger years, I'm pretty confident my brother gave my mom a candle for at least 10 Christmases in a row. But if you're shopping at Bath & Body Works or Yankee Candle, you're missing out on the opportunity to give a luxury candle. For just a shade under $5,000, you can buy a candle that not only gives a little light and warmth, like all candles do, but it also comes with a handcrafted necklace wrapped around it. Made by Gucci, the 14-carat white gold necklace has 38 dazzling diamonds, which total 2.23 carats. Now, you might ask yourself, why would I want an expensive necklace that wraps around a candle? But that seems like the wrong question to ask, because again, the goal here is to be unique. And no doubt, if you give a luxury candle with a diamond necklace wrapped around it, you will be unique. But if candles aren't your thing, there are plenty of other options. Hansa Toys USA has made a song playing reindeer that you can purchase for a mere $6,920. Now that price tag probably seems a little bit steep also, but you have to keep in mind, this is a legitimately sized reindeer. Checking in at nearly five and a half feet tall, the reindeer will not only sing and dance to three different songs recorded on an SD card, but the deer will also take up a huge amount of space in your living room. It's a great decoration piece. But lest those two gifts are not unique enough or expensive enough, there are plenty of other options, especially options that are connected to Christmas decorations and contain lots of jewelry. 
for $14,000. You can buy a Christmas tree stand. That's right, just something you put your Christmas tree in that's gold-plated and adorned with crystals. For $950,000, just shy of a million, you can buy a star that goes on the top of your Christmas tree that is diamond-studded and contains more than 281 diamonds. Now, of course, if you're going to buy that kind of star, you better have a good tree, too. To that end, perhaps that could interest you in a solid gold Christmas tree made by famed Japanese jeweler Jinza Tanaka. This particular tree is made of 24 karat solid gold and checks in at nearly 8 feet tall and weighs 26 and a half pounds. And it can be yours for the low price tag of $1.95 million. But perhaps that's a bit too extravagant for you, I get it. And you prefer to give a gift of food this holiday season. If so, perhaps you could give a gift of fruit mince pies created by celebrated UK chef Ben Tish. Stuffed with truffles, foie gras, I'm not even sure if I'm saying these things right, manuka honey, goji berries, PX Reserve Sherry, and wrapped in 24 karat gold, the tray of six pies will only set you back $27,000. But let's be honest, if you're going to give these types of gifts, you're going to need to make sure that you wrap them in something nice too. So perhaps my most important recommendation this morning is related to wrapping paper. Luxury gift wrapping company, did not know that something like that existed, but apparently it does. Luxury gift wrapping company Rebecca Choll has created a wrapping paper that is coated with Swarovski crystals. Now granted, the price tag is a bit of a shocker, as $7,549 seems a bit extravagant for wrapping paper. But if you really want people to know that you care, nothing says love like crystals on wrapping paper, does it? I can't tell you how many times I've woken up on Christmas morning disappointed, only to find out that my Christmas wrapping paper is just normal and has no crystals on it. I suspect you can probably relate. Wouldn't we all feel better if we had presents that were wrapped in crystals? Maybe not. In fact, if you can't tell by now, my gift suggestions this morning are a bit tongue-in-cheek. Now, mind you, all of the items that I just listed actually exist. But the fact that anyone buys them blows my mind. And it makes me wonder, how did we get here? How did we go from Christmas being a celebration of the birth of Christ to a holiday in which people spend $2 million on a Christmas tree, or $27,000 on pies, or $7,500 on wrapping paper. Now, I understand that gifts were original part of the Christmas story. When the wise men showed up, certainly they came bearing gold and frankincense and myrrh. But it seems that there is a tangible difference between bringing gold to the king of kings as opposed to having a tree in your house that's made of 24 karat solid gold. But that's where we are, isn't it? In 2021, for many people, Christmas is about materialism and luxury and opulence and over-the-top gift-giving. It's about spending $5,000 on a candle or $7,000 on a singing reindeer or $4 million on a diamond wreath, which I didn't even have time to get to. It's kind of unbelievable. But here's where we have to be honest. Well, I doubt that any of us in this room, in fact, I hope none of us in this room have a $2 million Christmas tree in our living room. I think we have to admit that sometimes we fall into the same trap of thinking that Christmas is about gifts and things and money. Or perhaps to say it another way, I think even as Christians, it's easy for us to lose sight of why the Christmas story really matters. And that's why I'm excited about what we're about to do over the course of the next four weeks. Starting today, and then for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at four songs in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 1 and 2, there are four songs that appear that are connected to the Christmas story. And in those four songs, I think we're going to be reminded of why the Christmas story actually matters. I think what we'll discover is this. The Christmas story is not what our culture wants to make it out to be. It's not a story about gifts and luxury. It's not a story about power and riches and fame, at least in the way that we think about power and riches and fame. 
Rather, it's a story about a humble king who entered into humble circumstances to save a weak and helpless people. I think that's something we see beginning our passage today, Luke 1, 46 to 55. But here's what I think we're going to discover over the course of the next four weeks, or what we're going to be reminded of, what we probably already knew before. I think what we're going to be reminded of is this. While the culture around us may want to see Christmas as a holiday that's about gifts and materialism and, and luxury trees, the actual Christmas story is far better. It's far more exciting, and in the end, far more meaningful. So that said, let's get to it. Luke 1, 46 to 55, if you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand here out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Standing is just a simple way that we can remind ourselves that this is the Word of God, and as such, it's due our reverence. Luke 1, 46 to 55, we read this starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So this hymn of Mary in Luke 1, 46 to 55 is the first of three hymns that is found in Luke 1 and 2. There's also an, ad- an additional song, a very brief one, that the angels sing in Luke 2, hence this particular four-week series that we're going through. Four songs from the Gospel of Luke that are about the hope of the Christmas season. That said, the first of those songs is found here in Luke 1. It's typically referred to as the Magnificat. That title actually comes from the Latin translation of this verse and the first word of the verse. And the word simply means to magnify or glorify. And indeed, that's what Mary is doing in this particular song. She is magnifying or glorifying or praising the name of God. God's blessing has come upon her, and so she's giving glory to God and praising God because of this blessing. Now, the context here is that earlier in Luke chapter 1, in verses 26 to 38, an angel visited Mary to inform her that she will bear a son, and his name will be Jesus. The angel tells her that he will be great and the son of the Most High. He will rest on the throne of David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, the angel announces to Mary that she's going to give birth to the Savior, The Messiah, the anointed one, the long-ago prophesied one, the one that was talked about in the Old Testament that would rescue his people from their sins. Now, in the passage immediately after that, in Luke 1, 39 to 45, and that's the passage that precedes the one we're looking at today, Elizabeth, who's the mother of John the Baptist, blesses Mary upon being able to understand what's happening with Mary. The Spirit gives her insight, and so she blesses Mary, understanding that Mary is going to give birth to Jesus. And it's in response to that blessing that Mary responds the way she does in Luke 1, 46-55 by praising God and glorifying His name. The song starts in a very personal way for Mary as she reflects on God's blessing in her life. This is verses 46-49. to Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, obviously, there are some Christian denominations that have made Luke 1 to say something more about Mary than what the text is actually saying. 
Specifically, some denominations have even lifted up Mary as if she's a co-redeemer right alongside Christ. And they do so on the basis of passages like this one, which talk about Mary being blessed by now on from all generations. But to lift Mary up as a co-redeemer with Christ or to suggest that she was sinless and thus to be worshipped alongside Christ is to butcher the overall storyline of Scripture. It's even to make a mess of the context of this passage. Even in this passage, Mary rejoices in God her Savior, which implies that she needed someone to save her and thus could not save herself. Furthermore, Jesus puts the nail in the coffin of Mary worship in Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, 11, 27, a woman cries out from the crowd and yells to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Jesus responds by saying, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So let's be clear here. What's happening in Luke 1, 46 to 49 is not an exaltation of Mary. Rather, it is Mary exalting God. And specifically, it's Mary exalting God because God has looked upon her humble estate and blessed her with the privilege of carrying the Savior. The Savior. There's nothing extraordinary about Mary. Now, as evidenced even by this song, it would seem that she feared God and walked with God. Scholars have pointed out that upwards of 13 Old Testament passages are alluded to or reflected in Mary's song in Luke 1, 46-55. So it would seem that Mary was saturated in the Old Testament scriptures to the point that they were just oozing out of her, or at the very least that the Spirit was leading her to the point that she was able to memorize or to meditate and reflect on scripture but outside of her spiritual condition which is notable mary does not seem to be a remarkable person in fact this is what mary herself is alluding to in verse 48 when she talks about her humble estate most likely mary was poor unknown and unremarkable she feared god but had little else to her name and yet for some reason god chose her to carry the savior of the world and that's what Mary's reflecting on in verses 46 to 49. She knows that she did not deserve God's favor. She knows that she was not special. She knows that she came from humble circumstances, and yet God blessed her and did something great for her. As Mary reflects on that reality, it's clear that she's attempting to draw attention to God's character and not her own. This is not a song about Mary. This is a song about God. And in the first few verses, Mary is meticulous to point out God's character. She points out that God is Savior, that God is mighty, that God does great things, that God is holy, that God is merciful. If you read Luke 146 to 55 and think this is a passage about Mary, you're missing the point. Luke 146 to 55 is about God's character. It's about God working in the life of a humble and lowly woman. And it's that theme of God working in the humble and lowly that then continues into verses 50 to 53. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thought of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So whereas verses 46 to 49 focus on God's activity in Mary's life, in verses 50 to 53, Mary steps back and ponders God's activity in general. And the basic theme of verses 50 to 53 is that God exalts the humble, but he brings down the proud. And in verses 50 to 53, Mary alternates back and forth between those two truths. On the one hand, God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. But on the other hand, he scatters the proud in the thought of their hearts. He brings down the mighty from their thrones, the rich man he sends away empty. And so in verses 50 to 53, you have this stark contrast. The humble and lowly are lifted up, 
but the rich and arrogant are taken down. And in those truths, we see that Mary's experience is not unique to her. Her experience parallels that of God's people throughout the ages. Those who fear him and walk in humility are those that are lifted up. Those who trust in themselves and in their own resources and riches are those that will be taken down. And in pointing that out, I don't think that Mary is just reflecting on the way that God has worked in the past. But I think by the power of the Spirit, she's also pointing out and portraying how things will work when Jesus is born. Those who recognize their helplessness and look to Christ will find vindication. But those who reject Jesus and trust in their own resources will be defeated. As verses 54 and 55 would indicate, Jesus is the one that was promised to Abraham. He's the one by which all the descendants of Abraham will be blessed. He's the one who will help Israel. But as verses 50 to 53 would subtly indicate, he helps those who know their weakness and those who humble themselves under his mighty hand. In other words, it's only those who put their trust in him and those who submit to his reign and rule that will find the salvation that was promised in the Old Testament. Now, as the rest of the New Testament will make clear, that will include some Israelites, but it will also include many Gentiles. Those who trust in their own power and strength, regardless of ethnicity, will find themselves humble and defeated. But those who recognize their need and come to Jesus in saving faith, again, regardless of ethnicity, will find victory and salvation. I think that's the major theme of Mary's song, that God is fulfilling his promise to Israel by sending Jesus into the world. But the coming of Jesus will bring about a great reversal. The humble will be lifted up and the proud will be taken down. Those who fear God and those who run to him and recognize their need for him will find salvation. Again, regardless of whether they're an Israelite or a Gentile. But those who trust in themselves and their own resources will find defeat. Jesus' story, then, is a story of surprise and, again, reversal. It's not the powerful and the wealthy and the influential who inherit the earth. It's the meek and the humble and the poor in spirit. It's those who recognize their need for salvation and turn to Christ to find that salvation that will be saved. That's the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas, again, is a story about a humble king who entered into humble circumstances in order to save a weak and helpless people. And it's to our shame and to our detriment that we've forgotten that and instead have turned Christmas into a holiday that's about luxury trees and expensive gifts and crystal-adorned wrapping paper. Christmas is not about opulence and luxury and materialism. As the Song of Mary reminds us, it's about God rescuing the lowly and the needy. It's about God fulfilling His promises and sending His Son to rescue the lost. And in light of that, I think there are some particular ways that we should respond to the Christmas story. Or to be more specific, I think there are some particular ways that we should respond to Mary's song here in Luke 1, 46-55. If Mary's talking about this great reversal that's coming, if she's flipping things upside down, the Spirit is helping her to help us understand that things are changing with Jesus coming, then I think we should respond in some very specific ways. First of all, I think we should respond to Mary's song by recognizing our own helplessness. By recognizing our own helplessness. I don't know if you've ever spent a great deal of time around two-year-olds before, but if you have, then you are aware of the fact that two-year-olds are often far more confident in their own abilities than they should actually be in reality. For a two-year-old, the refrain of, I can do it myself, is a constant theme. Whether it be zipping up their coats or putting on their shoes or carrying something heavy around the house, their confidence in their own ability is breathtaking. And at times, it's comical. 
I've seen many a two-year-old attempt to make a basket on a 10-foot basketball hoop, only to barely get the ball above their head, not even half the way there. And then they pick up the ball, and they shoot again with the expectation, this time it's going in. And they'll do that again and again and again and again. That is irrational confidence. And two-year-olds have this irrational confidence in spades. I mean, does little Johnny really think he can carry the 40-pound suitcase up the stairs on his own? Does little Susie really think she can button up her shirt without any help? The answer to that question is yes. But listen, while it may be kind of cute to see little Tommy try to make a basket on a 10-foot hoop, or little Susie try to button up her shirt, or little Johnny try to carry the suitcase up his stairs, it's not so cute when we as adults or we as older children have the same type of irrational confidence when it comes to our spiritual lives. In fact, it's downright dangerous. Listen, the Bible is clear. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. We were born with a sinful nature and we choose to sin. As such, our sin has separated us from a holy God. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do in our own effort to make ourselves right with God. He is holy, we are not. And there is no way that we could stand before a holy and perfect God on the basis of our own works. And yet, it seems that many of us have an irrational confidence that we could do just that. Many are convinced, probably including even some in this room, that if we're just a good enough person, that if we just do enough good things, that if we go to church enough, or if we say enough prayers, or maybe we read the Bible enough, or if we give away enough money, or if we help those in need enough, then God will accept us on the basis of our own merits. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people over the years where I've asked, you know, how do you think you would stand before a holy God? Or, or why do you think you would go to heaven? And their response is simply to say, because I'm a good person. But do you realize that saying that is the spiritual equivalent of little Tommy thinking he's going to make the next shot on the 10-foot basketball hoop when he's missed the last 30? In fact, our confidence is even more irrational than little Tommy's. Because spiritually speaking, the hoop that we're aiming for is infinitely high. The standard is God's holiness. And no matter how many times you try on your own merit, you will never make that shot. You need someone else to make it for you. And that's Jesus. He's the one who can make the shot. Or to drop the basketball analogy, he's the one who lived the holy life you could not live. He's the one who satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. Only on the basis of his merit could you ever stand before a holy God. Only because he took the punishment you deserve to take. Only because he lived the righteous life we could not live could we possibly approach the throne of grace with any confidence. So do not be like the irrationally confident two-year-old. You cannot do it on your own. You need the help of another. You need the righteousness of Christ. God will take down the arrogant and the self-righteous. But those who acknowledge their need for him and turn to him in saving faith will find grace and mercy and forgiveness. This is one of the main themes of Mary's song, that God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. And in light of that, let me encourage you this morning to recognize your own neediness and run to Christ where salvation is found. If you've never trusted in him, recognize that you are a sinner and you need Jesus And if you are a Christian, that you would recognize on a daily basis, we still need his help. Run to him, you're needy. But secondly, in light of Mary's song, I think we should respond with gratitude. With gratitude. Mary's own response in this passage, I think, models for us how we should respond to God's activity in our life. In the Magnificent, 
Mary's reflecting on God's blessing in her life. She's reflecting on her humble state and God's kindness toward her. And her response is one of gratitude and praise. Again, look at the way the song begins, verse 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary's blessed with the opportunity to be the mother of the Savior. And her first response is not to think, I must be awesome. No, her first response is to reflect on God's goodness to her. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's her response. And if that's Mary's response, how much more should we respond in gratitude and praise on this side of the cross and on this side of the empty tomb? If we've trusted in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. We have peace with God and we have the certainty of future glory. How could we not respond to that reality with praise and gratitude and worship? Now, having said that, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Let me be honest with you here. The last two weeks have not been easy for our family. Our son's relapse with his disease has come with some terrible moments. I mean, really awful moments. And by the grace of God, he's doing better. We're thankful for that. At least the last three days have been a significant uptick for his health. Grateful for that. But this week was awful. There's some terrible moments. In particular, Wednesday was awful. After I went home and helped Tanya, came back here, and I was reading this passage. And the passage that kept coming back to me, or the verse that God kept bringing me back to, was verse 49. I think this is a powerful verse. Mary says this, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Here's the thing. I hate the fact that my son is sick and I hate that things are hard for him, but it is still unequivocally true that God has done great things for me. He's given me a wife beyond what I deserve, four kids that consistently bring me joy, a job that I love, a church family that I love. He's given me good health. We have great neighbors. We love the community that we live in. And most notably, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. In 1999, by the power of the Holy Spirit, my eyes were opened to the truth of the good news. And by the grace of God, I am now in Christ, and I have the hope of future glory. So it is safe to say that even though we are in the midst of a trial, that God has done great things for me. And I suspect if you were to look hard enough, you would find the same thing to be true in your life, especially and primarily if you know Jesus. Now, I'm saying that. I'm not trying to minimize or downplay any suffering that you faced or that you're currently facing. Some of you have gone through terrible, terrible things. And I hate that the world we live in is so ugly and broken. And I lament with you that it is ugly and broken. But even though the brokenness of this world is real, that doesn't change the fact that God is good and he's done great things for us. If you're not a Christian, he's done great things for you and that the offer of the gospel is freely made to you. You have an opportunity even today to repent of your sins and look to Jesus Christ so that you can have the hope of eternal life and your sins can be forgiven. That is a blessing. And if you know Christ, then he has done great things for you in a very particular way. You are in Christ Your sins have been forgiven. Your enmity with God is gone, and one day God has promised he will make things right. And the only way I know how to respond to that is with gratitude and praise. Thank you, God, for being so kind and merciful to us, even though we don't deserve it. 
Yes, this world is broken and it is ugly and it is hard, but God has done great things for us. Let us rejoice in Him and let us give thanks to Him. So that's the second response we see from Mary's song, gratitude. The third response, though, I think is this. We should respond to Mary's song by looking at the world in a completely different way. If you're a sports fan, you may have heard that earlier this week, the head football coach at the University of Oklahoma, Lincoln Riley, left to take the same job at the University of Southern California, USC. It was a move that shocked the college football world and will potentially have ramifications in the college football for years to come. But it wasn't just a shocking move because of the football implications. It was also a shocking move because of the nature of the contract that was given to this coach. Now, all the details of the contract are not yet known, but it was initially reported that Riley's new contract was in the neighborhood of $110 million for 10 years. On top of that, the University of Southern California reportedly bought both of his homes in Norman, Oklahoma for $500,000 over asking price, a million-dollar bonus. They also bought him a $6 million house in Los Angeles, and reportedly they gave him and his family unlimited use of a private jet to go wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted to go. Now, I'll admit, my first reaction when I heard the details of that deal was to question, am I in the right profession here? Should have I been a college football coach? But thankfully, that feeling only lasted for a second. Because the truth is, and hear this clearly, money and fame and houses and jets mean nothing in the end. As the old phrase goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. As Mary's song reminds us, the great reversal is coming. The proud and the haughty and the powerful and the mighty, they may be exalted now. They will eventually be brought low unless they turn and trust in Christ. But the humble and the meek and the poor in spirit who do trust in Christ will be exalted. And if that's the case, we need to start thinking differently now. Here's the thing. I doubt that many of us are aiming for a 10-year, $110 million contract with 24-7 access to a private jet. But many of us are chasing after miniature versions of that same dream, aren't we? We're convinced that if we just had a little bit more money, or a little nicer house, or a little faster car, or a little more success in the workplace, or a little more power, or a little more fame, then we would be happy and then we would be satisfied. But it's not true. Now, to be sure, there may be a temporary happiness that comes with more money and more things, but it's not a joy that lasts, and it's certainly not a joy that will carry into eternity. Because as Mary's song reminds us, the great reversal is coming. The humble who fear God and walk in his ways will be exalted. The proud and the arrogant and the mighty will be brought low. And so my encouragement to us this morning is let's live now like that reality is indeed coming. Don't chase after the American dream. Chase after Jesus. Don't try to be the most popular kid in your school. Instead, make it your goal to make Christ known. Don't live for money or fame or power. Live for the glory of God. Don't live for possessions that won't last. Store up treasure in heaven. Our goal should not be to make a name for ourselves or to live our best life now. Our goal is to bring glory to God and one day experience the joy of being with Him forever. That's our goal. So let's live like it. Listen, I know that the goals that we have are different than the world. And as evidenced by $2 million trees and $7,500 wrapping paper, the way the world views Christmas is also different than we will too. But that's to be expected. 
because the world is going to see things differently than we do. But we know the truth. We know that the Christmas story is not about luxury and opulence and materialism. We know it's about a humble king born into humble circumstances to save a weak and helpless people. And in light of that, we should respond by recognizing our neediness, by being grateful for God's provision, particularly his provision in Christ, and by looking at the world in a completely different way. Church, let's be clear. The Christmas story is not about fancy gifts. It's about a humble king who came to turn the world upside down. Let's live for that king. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for Mary's song that reminds us of the great reversal that is coming. That those who humble themselves, those who fear you, those who submit to your reign and rule will eventually be exalted and they will reign with Jesus forever. But those who trust in their own righteousness, those who trust in their own resources, their own riches will be brought low. Lord, help us to recognize that we are needy. Help us to respond in gratitude that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And help us to live with a completely different view of the world in light of the reversal that's coming. Lord, please help us to live in light of your birth, your perfect life, your death on the cross, and your ascension. Help us to live for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.